Welcome to RoyalOaks.com. I'm Royal Oaks. The death of Justice Antonin Scalia. I'll give you my take on who he was and the idea of replacing him, the controversy that's going to swirl around that, and finally the impact of his death on a lot of high-profile cases pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. So who was Justice Scalia? Well, his background, of course, was 1986, nominated by Ronald Reagan. So almost 30 years on the high court. Uh, He was the first Italian-American Supreme Court justice, had nine kids with his uh, wife of many years. Remarkable career, uh, graduated with honors from Harvard Law School, law professor at 31, and then he was a Nixon administration lawyer appointed by Ronald Reagan to the federal appellate bench and then to the high court. As for his style, everybody knows he was a lightning rod. It was something about the intensity that he brought to the job, the provocative language he would use, whether he was in the minority or the majority. Uh, he hit some really angry dissents. He just grabbed your attention and guaranteed strong reactions, whether they were negative or positive. His opinions could be slashing and sarcastic and cutting and caustic. He loved a good fight with words. He was a debate champion back in college days uh, when he was at Georgetown. So what about uh, Justice Scalia's philosophy? Well, he had a philosophy called originalism. So when it comes to interpreting the Constitution, he argued it means what it meant when it was adopted. Uh, What the founders thought is what we should be thinking in terms of the meaning of the Constitution. And that translated into a lot of things that many people didn't like. He supported the death penalty. He opposed uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, recognizing an abortion right under the Constitution. What was his impact on the court? Well, some people say that he was such a force of nature that nobody could rival his impact over the 30 years he was on the court. But, you know, when you think about it, Justice Anthony Kennedy may have had far more impact. He actually decided the cases because he was the swing vote. I mean, you had four reliable conservatives, Scalia, Alito, Thomas, and Roberts. Roberts was pretty reliable. And then you had four absolutely reliable liberals, Sotomayor, Kagan, Ginsburg, and Breyer, the the current group. So Kennedy was and is the decider. It, It was really more the emotions that Scalia stirred, more than deciding key cases that really made him famous. I mean, he weighed in on the on the big gun control case, the case that after 200 plus years finally decided, yes, the Second Amendment does mean individuals are entitled to own guns, subject to reasonable regulations. His strong opposition to affirmative action and and other policies that treated minorities as groups guaranteed that he would be a controversial figure. He believed in the death penalty. He considered there was no constitutional right to abortion. He thought if people wanted to legalize abortion, a law could be passed to accomplish it. He didn't always please conservatives. On on 9-11 issues, he voted with liberals on occasion. For example, in the big Hamden case uh, with Bush 41 in the White House, uh, 43, excuse me, he held that although Congress approved the detention of a U.S. citizen detained as an enemy combatant, the Fifth Amendment gave that person the right to contest the detention in court. The real legacy of Scalia was a comment made, I think, by the New York Times uh, within minutes after he died. And they they got it right. He led a conservative renaissance on the Supreme Court. He was appointed in the midst of the Reagan Revolution. He may not have ever gotten the top job as Chief Justice. There were reports he was a little chapped about that. But he was such a force of nature from Bush versus Gore in 2000. He, He famously remarked recently, people should get over it. Uh, to the issues of executive power and the intent of the Constitution, he, he was a remarkable 
justice. He had soulmates on the court. Uh, he had a philosophical soulmate, and that was Clarence Thomas. They voted together more than just about any pair of justices in recent decades. But the irony is, personality-wise, they're polar opposites. You know, Scalia was gregarious and outgoing, and Thomas, of course, famously never speaks. It's been 11 years since he's asked a question from the bench on the U.S. Supreme Court. But Scalia? Well, people take keep track of these things, and court watchers say Scalia talked more than any of his colleagues from the bench. One study even found he provoked laughter more than any other justice. You know, they have transcripts of all of the proceedings where the lawyers get up and argue their cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. And when somebody titters, then the, te- the transcript says laughter. And sure enough, Scalia was the, was the king of laughter. His soulmate from a personal standpoint on the court was, ironically, another irony, Justice Ruth Ginsburg. They were really close personal friends. And after her husband passed on, uh, Scalia and his wife, their friendship w- was intensified further. And it's fascinating that that was possible because they absolutely were like cats and dogs, oil and water, when it comes to judicial philosophy and votes on key cases year after year that both of them felt really intensely about. Can you imagine that kind of relationship, them being soulmates, in any other political context? I mean, in the legislative branch, it's a duel to the death. It's, it's balls-to-the-wall partisanship. But that's not the way it was with Scalia. It's interesting that he kind of symbolized this new litmus test era that we have now in the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, he got in really easily, 98 to 0. I would say that qualifies as easy. But in recent years, as we know, it's all about the litmus test. The presidents deny it, but I don't think they're telling us the truth. Republicans, Democrats, you know that they sit down with these people that they nominate, and whether they come out and get an absolute promise or not, and they vet these people. If an abortion is a big issue for for the president or gun control rights or immigration, you know that they're only appointing true believers. And how different that is from the past. I mean, when you look a few decades back in American political slash judicial history, you didn't have this litmus test deal. Uh, Think about uh, Earl Warren, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, appointed by Republican President Dwight Eisenhower in the early 1950s. Now, Eisenhower wasn't the most conservative guy on the planet, but he was a right-winger. And he said later on it was the dumbest thing he ever did in his life to appoint Earl Warren as Chief Justice, because we know Warren ended up presiding over one of the most liberal eras of Supreme Court justice in our history. And it wasn't just Warren. Move forward a little bit. Richard Nixon's president. He goes through a real nightmare trying to pick a guy, uh, picked Clement Hainsworth and, and Harold Carswell, and they both had skeletons in their closet. So then he had to go with a third choice, and he ended up, okay, we'll go with Harry Blackman. He'll be okay. Guy from Minnesota. Well, Blackman ended up being a reliable liberal vote for the U.S. Supreme Court, and he wrote Roe versus Wade. Not exactly what Richard Nixon had in mind. You move forward to Bush 41, and he listens to his pal uh, Sununu from New Hampshire. Next thing you know, David Souter on the U.S. Supreme Court, a Republican president. George Bush appoints him. Souter has become 
he's gone now from the court, one of the most reliable votes for the liberal wing over the last several decades. And, of course, he uh, he also weighed in on, on a few extraneous issues, and one that caught my attention due to my interest in cameras in the courtroom. Souter hated the idea of cameras in the courtroom, and his famous comment was, there will be a camera in the U.S. Supreme Court over my dead body. So, the the litmus test era is here, and Justice Scalia kind of ushered it in. Okay, will the president be allowed to replace Justice Scalia? Isn't it interesting that so quickly after the announcement of the death, I mean there was very little time to mourn and moan and groan over the loss of this great man. It was immediate. The speculation started. Will the president be allowed to replace him? With 11 months left in the president's term, one would think. Initially, one's reaction is, well, yeah, that's what presidents do. But And maybe it's because the South Carolina presidential Republican debate was scheduled for that very evening that, that everyone learned of Scalia's death. And you knew that the Republican debaters would be focusing on this issue. But for whatever reason, instantly the nation's political antenna went up and the debate began, should the president be allowed to replace him? And the instant answer we got, and we'll see how it plays out over the next few weeks and months, but the instant answer is, no, he will not. Even though it would mean 11 months of less than full strength on the court, a lot of four to four decisions, kissing your sister, the Republicans run the Senate, and they are not going to allow this president to replace this Supreme Court justice, this lion of the conservative movement, who Ronald Reagan w- w- was able to put on the court and, and dramatically influence the, the direction of the country for three decades, the Republicans are not about to allow uh, the, uh, the, the president to replace Justice Scalia. I mean, they're going to take some heat for allegedly interfering with the normal order of things. But let's face it, we are living in such a contentious and partisan time it is impossible to believe the Republicans will pass on this opportunity to push the decision on replacing Scalia into the term of the new president. I mean, with the flurry of five to four decisions in recent years and all the talk about how critical the Supreme Court makeup is to our life, you know, whether it's abortion or immigration or whatever, it would be perceived as a colossal breach of faith and political malpractice to let Obama shift the balance of power in this way. I mean, you think decades back about the the cry, who lost China, right? The Republicans claimed, you know, who's to blame for losing China? It was all about FDR giving it away at Yalta and Truman and Potsdam and all that. Well, Republicans are going to be talking for decades about who lost Scalia's seat if the Republican Senate somehow allows the president to outmaneuver them and get a progressive replacement for Scalia. The Republican mantra is going to be, and it'll probably start at the Republican South Carolina debate, the mantra will be, let the people decide. Let the people pick a president who will then select Scalia's replacement. Do not let the man who trampled on the separation of powers by usurping the legislative branch's function, do not let him control yet another branch of government by replacing Scalia. It's funny, presidential campaigns 
can be very reactive. Remember when the, the jihadist couple killed 14 people with gunfire in San Bernardino a few months ago? The campaign pivoted to terrorism instantly. And the candidates who were perceived as strong on terror, they got a big boost. So now look for the candidates to hammer on the importance of the philosophical bent of the Supreme Court, whether the issue is guns or abortion or immigration. Republicans will argue that if it takes a 2016 long filibuster to make sure the next president replaces Scalia, then so be it. And you know that Bernie and Hillary are going to look at it from their perspective. They're going to reach out to their constituency and they're going to say to women, you know there's a war on women here. You know the key factor in who wins this war on women is who's on the Supreme Court. So both sides will try to, to, try to get their folks to line up. If you go back into political history, uh, it can be difficult to get a Supreme Court justice uh, confirmed in the last year of your term. Lyndon Johnson, in 1968, which was the last full year he was president, he tried to get uh, Abe Fortas uh, in as chief justice, and it was blocked by a Republican filibuster. So look for a, a very bruising fight coming up. If he does get a chance, and of course he'll he'll be nominating some people, who might he nominate? Well, it's funny, you know, in the past the attorney general uh, in an administration uh, who is a prestigious figure sometimes is on the short list for, uh, uh, for the Supreme Court. I don't think Eric Holder, former attorney general in the Obama administration, is really going to be on that short list. He was such a lightning rod himself. I think he was the only attorney general in our nation's history who was found in contempt of Congress. Um, he's probably not going to be on the list. Now, what happens is the conventional wisdom is you go to the Court of Appeals in the federal appellate system and you pick somebody who is really young and really smart and has a great track record and you, you get them through the Congress. Uh, that seems to be the, the pattern over the last many years. The thing is, from Obama's standpoint, it would have to be a moderate somebody who has a huge reputation for competence and integrity, how else could he somehow hope to get the Republican-controlled Senate? And, of course, by definition, then they control the Judiciary Committee as well as all the other committees. But if he does that, if he appoints somebody who's right down the middle, basically he's wasting an ideological vote. So the fight is going to be really ugly. So... What does it mean in terms of the pending cases? There are four or five really huge cases pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. And basically, you know, whatever the lower court decided is probably going to end up being the decision because you're going to get a bunch of unsatisfying kiss-your-sister 4-4 votes. Uh, what's pending? Well, the public sector union power ruling. We saw an oral argument recently that suggested the Supreme Court was about to eviscerate the power of public sector unions to force members to pay for political activity. Uh, maybe not with a 4-4 deal. Abortion. Does Texas have the right to impose restrictions on where abortions may be performed? That's a hot-button case pending before this Supreme Court. No Scalia. Affirmative action. <laughs> Once again, Texas is where it's at. Their affirmative action program is again in the crosshairs. How significant may race be as a factor in college admissions? We heard Justice Sandra Day O'Connor say several years ago, sort of grudgingly voting for affirmative action, saying, you know, we may not need this. I hope we don't need this in 20 years. But right now, we do need it. This Supreme Court may decide whether we are done with affirmative action. The one-person, one-vote decision, another Texas case that could, why does everything come out of Texas these days? That could shift the balance of power. The question is, when you're counting up people in, in legislative areas, districts, 
Uh, you don't gerrymander. You have uh, one, it used to be one man, one vote. Now it's one person, one vote. When you're counting the persons to be equal in number in each district, do you count eligible voters only? Or do you count every human being in the district, including a bunch of folks who are not eligible voters, illegals, and so on? That's a huge fight. Could shift the balance of power toward the Republicans in many areas of the country. That's up for grabs as well, but without Scalia's vote. And finally, uh, may religious votes refuse to participate in Obamacare. You know, the Hobby Lobby kind of thing where the the Catholic orders are saying, uh, we don't want our name on a, a plan, a health plan that says you can get a morning-after pill. You're telling us, oh, it's okay because we don't have to pay for it. You, you're going to raise tax dollars. Federal government will pay for it. No. Our name is associated with it. We don't want it as an option for our people. That's on the docket for the Supreme Court as well. So a lot of question marks. A bunch of 4-4 decisions in the next months. A few months of bruising national debate over Scalia's replacement. Bottom line, Antonin Scalia was really, really important in life, and he's going to be important in death as well. So to honor Justice Scalia, let's go for a tune by a fellow paisan. It's number 38 on our list of the top 50 songs of all time. You'll remember it from the film Moonstruck. It was the nation's number two song on the Billboard chart in 1953, Dean Martin's That's Amore. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing Vita Bella. Hearts will play tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay, like a guitar and When the stars make you drool, just like a pastefazool, that's amore. When you dance down the street with a cloud at your feet, you're in love. When you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming, signore. Excuse me, but you see back in old Napoli, that's amore. Dreaming, Senor. 
Adjussi vägen hålla och lida som morgon.